Is it pre-recorded on Monday? Mm-hmm. Do we know who it is? It's, <laughs> it's the Smurfs. <gasps> it's the Smurf show. Yeah, it's the Smurf show. Yep. Oh my goodness. Okay. I am I am kind of excited for the Smurf show. I'm not gonna lie. I pulled a you guys, didn't do the reading. Oh, that's okay. Morning to most, good afternoon to others, and good evening to the viewing audience across the pond. I'm Jason Miles, your host for another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. If you're new to the channel, please like, subscribe, and if you're enjoying what you see, make sure to hit the notification bell as we're constantly adding new episodes and doing cross streams with other channels like we do with our bi-monthly news show, Revolutionary Reckoning, with David and Matt of Left Reckoning. We had Matt Chrisman from Chapo Trap House on Thursday, and we discussed failing societies. It was a good time, and we even had a better time with the call-in segment in the champagne room. If you'd like to be a part of these call-in segments, have access to all the past and present champagne rooms, there's only one way. Become a patron for as little as $30 for the year or $3 for the month. You can join in the fun also, I have to remind you guys, it's the holiday season, and what better gift to give to your favorite leftists than a ticket to the Give Them a Revolution Leftist Best Live Show. We're bringing the party to New York City. Be live at the cutting room. Will MT be there? Good question. <laughs> Will MT be there in a luchador mask? Will, will MT be there? Will people see the illustrious, faceless entity? I was thinking Guy Fox, but okay. <laughs> That's the mask you wanted to wear? Yeah. Is that, it's cliche. Then the one from Scream? I don't want to kill anyone. That would be kind of awesome if you came out in the screen mask. <laughs> I think we should have another person say they're you and it's not for you. I think that would be good. But as they talk, it's you, like their mouth is moving, but it's your voice. 
that that that's that, yeah, just hella badass dubbing. That I think that would be fun. But again, it'll be T I R Ben Burgess. Actually, and the whole Ben Burgess give them uh, an argument crew. Matt and David from Left Reckoning, and a host of other guests as well. With that out of the way, let me bring in the Saturday crew. First and foremost, my homie, my dog, the man of the Mel Mel Hour. He is the Pascal Robert. Peace and greetings to the chat. Peace and greetings to the audience. Peace and greetings, Jason Miles, and peace and greetings, Emma Toussaint. Uh, I should also add that the countdown to Pascal's birthday is nine oh, days. God. He is born in nine days. In nine days, Pascalmas. <laughs> it's a Pascal Christmas for those that don't know. <laughs> Pascalmas. We're doing a Pascal show, so if you guys have any videos you'd like to send wishing Pascal a happy birthday, please feel free to send them at booking at thisisrevolution.com or thisisrevolutionpodcast.com and uh, we're going to put a collage of birthday messages together for Pascalmas. Are you ready for that, Pascal? I'm a little terrified. It's not going to be a roast. <laughs> like that. M2 Sun is disappointed already. <laughs> Damn it. Can you, can you imagine if we had a Pascal roast? I had to throw out my script. <laughs> I was just watching The Office, and it was the episode where Michael wanted a roast because he thought it was where people say how wonderful he is, and they didn't know it was where people talk shit about him. So yeah, that's that's probably one of my favorite episodes. Um, but yeah, we're gonna do a special Pascal birthday episode. It, MT has been arranging everything for for Pascalmas. I'm trying to arrange a surprise guest. <gasps> oh, Ooh. come on, man! Ooh. Pascal, this is your life. Ooh, would you do oh, this no. is your life, or would you get someone that Pascal really admired, like? Um, oh, she passed away. Vivica Fox. Ooh. Yeah, I wouldn't mind that. Guess. Someone said Brianna Joy Gray. <laughs> oh, that, that's, that's my birthday. <laughs> Gross. Um, <laughs> oh. Congratulations, Morocco. Did Morocco win? Mm-hmm. Are we doing the thing where we only root for African nations again? Let's be stereotypically black. Why not? Okay. <laughs> MT, are you like, can you find Morocco on a map? I can only find water <laughs> on maps. <laughs> Unfortunately. Oh. <sighs> MT? You know, yes. what time you know what time it is. Time for my intro? It's No. Before your no. intro, there's something that you always have to do. It is that time. What could that be? What could that be? 
maybe the East Coast merch pitch. East Coast merch pitch. Folks, we got your snapbacks in stock. Perfect for matching with your tent. Everything here matches with your tent. Matches with your everything. Tins. We got sweatshirts. We got hoodies. Tim's. This is, is revolution. Anglo pessimism t-shirt matches with Tim's perfectly. The wheat colored ones. Wheat colored Tim's. Where it is That's bond. right. We got a mouse pad over here. We got another mouse pad oh. over here. We got Pascal smiling on a mug and a mouse pad. Had to capture that moment. Word is bond. Mm-hmm. Son, <laughs> we got it on a t-shirt too. And a <laughs> this is revolution mug. This mug is revolution. Um, speaking of revolutionary mugs, we did a pre-record, Pascal and I, and the guest had Jason Mueller had a This Is Revolution mug. He had the Pascal smiling face mug. That's so cool. He did. To get his wife gave it to him as a Christmas gift. Oh. So, These make perfect gifts. And it's that time of year where this is, you know, you want your your uh Pascal Christmas mug. I have a Christmas album. Yeah, promote Jason's Christmas album. Yeah. Can you put a link in the... MT's like, I don't have a link to that bullshit. I don't have a link to it yet. You made it yesterday. (laughs) I I released a link yesterday. I didn't make the record yesterday. Okay. Uh, I do want to shout out that one of the viewers of the show actually makes synths. So if you listen to this record, it's very synth heavy, and it's because someone made me a synth, and um, I just got to play around a lot with it. So this is a lot of fun. So yeah, if you guys like weird heavy music, there is a Christmas record as well, and it, is out, it comes out Christmas. The pre-order is out now on Bandcamp, and you can listen to it and pay what you want for it. And on that note, let's bring in our guest. Who's been patiently waiting? I guess it's like Doug Lane doesn't make me wait like this. <laughs> He's like, that's what I get coming on a show with you people. <laughs> <laughs> Todd McGowan is a professor of theory and film at the University of Vermont. He is the author of many books on politics, film, and contemporary theory including universality and identity politics. And this is a big reason why Todd is here. The first book on sublation that's out right now. So wherever you're watching or listening to the show, there's links in the description to Todd's new book. Please welcome, coming all the way live from a secret bunker in Vermont, Todd McGowan. Thanks for having me, Todd. Thanks for thanks for joining us. Thanks again. Thank you for your patience. Usually, ah, no, I could have listened to you guys for the whole time. That would have been much better. <laughs> we we can see. I can see people in the corner of my eye, in the virtual green room, and uh, 
sometimes I can't tell, especially when I have my glasses on, I can't tell if they're irritated or not. So I was like, okay, let's be a little more brief. You couldn't tell that I was laughing. I was not. I can't. I I can't. I'm tired. I can't see. I don't have my glasses on. I was not irritated. So, um, I would love to talk to you about film all day as I just got off of a pre-record I did on another show we do on this channel called Gaming Materials where we talked about film. But we read your book about joy. Yeah. And pain. (laughs) (laughs) Pascal, I know you have a lot to say on this this matter. I do. I found it very fascinating. Okay, we asked a question. <laughs> Todd, yeah. uh, I found your thesis very interesting about how politics and political action is actually rooted in expectations of enjoyment as opposed to pleasure, particularly how you make the distinction between enjoyment and pleasure. I'd like you to elaborate on that as well. Can you tell our audience, which you did so effectively in your book, what are the differences in the expectations of enjoyment that come from particularly the reactionary Trumpist right and the the actual liberal, uh, neoliberal, if you will, Biden left or version of the left? And how does that play into their success politically? Yeah, that's a yeah, it's, it's a good it's a good starting point. I I, I think that. So first of all, just to, to, to touch on the, what you initially said. So pleasure for me is what's this release of, I have a release of stimulus, a release of excitation, and then I feel the instant pleasure and then it's gone. Whereas enjoyment, it's always tied up with a buildup of that. Like it's, there's something stressful about it. There's a buildup to it. It's, 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 not, it's not getting rid of suffering. It's like, take, there's some suffering always to it. The thing about right wing, you just made this distinction that I make in the beginning of the book between right wing, like Trumpist, Bolsonaroist, uh, Modiist enjoyment and the liberal enjoyment. And the, the one thing about Trumpist, that far right wing enjoyment, or maybe it's not so far right wing anymore, uh, is that it requires an enemy. And so part of the way that it or the way that it works is that it takes the enemy and 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 establishes a sense of we enjoy because we're not that thing, but it really has to parasitically enjoy through that figure of the enemy. Like the enemy is the one transgressing. The enemy is the one doing the things that we wish we were doing. And so that there's an enjoyment tied. That's how the enjoyment structured. But what's interesting is I think that the liberal version, and I think this was pretty clear with Biden and even clear when which in the way in which the Democrats ran the recent, the midterm election campaign is that they they also need an enemy as well like they have to have the fear of trump if, if we are the fear of losing democracy there's some idea of enemy uh intrinsic to their form of enjoyment as well so part of the thing that i'm arguing is that the liberal version of enjoyment and the and the right-wing enjoyment they're not really that all that different that they kind of seem there's a similarity to them but don't you think this this uh, focus, well, I don't know if it's a focus or it's a secondary consequence of the posture of the po- of, of the parties, which is actually something maybe you could answer for me. Do you think that in the enjoyment factor 
of what more motivates the adherence to these political parties or factions is actually part of the core operating principle of the various factors, whether they're liberal or conservative, or they're secondary to what their policy agenda is. In other words, is it important to the reactionary right that they make owning the libs enjoyable, that they make you know crushing with the people they consider the freaks and the geeks enjoyable? Is it important to the liberals to make it seem like protecting democracy from the fash is enjoyable? Or is that simply a consequence of what their overarching policy agenda is? Yeah, Pascal, it's a great question. I think, I think that the I mean, the wager of the book really is that it's enjoyment that's in the driver's seat. That that the structure of enjoyment is what's primary, and then the ideas they kind of follow from that. And so the structure of enjoyment for the conservative is the so owning the libs is, and I think this is true. Like it's more important to them, or owning the politically correct whoever, or the or or attacking like the things that they're attacking, like trans, anti-trans, attacking critical race theory, all these kinds of attacks to me are more central to the position than any policy. Like it's not about defending a certain policy. And and I think that's what actually holds the people together. It's not the, what, yeah, go ahead, sorry. Well, what's, what's fascinating to me about that, and this is where I, I kind of take issue with your position. I think I don't disagree with you that the enjoyment element is a clear part of the politics, particularly of the right. I really see that they get off, particularly on the owning the libs or crushing, because I think that the, 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 the one of the things that distinguishes the reactionary right from the liberals is that the reactionary right is more clear in its purpose and raison d'etre than the liberals are. But that being said, I think that the enjoyment for both sides is a pretext to avoid talking about policy because neither one of them want to actually redistribute wealth. Yeah, but but I would just say, like, what is at stake in the redistribution of wealth, right? Like, I think what's at stake is, and this is this is why I talk about a leftist form, form of enjoyment, because I think what's at stake in the redistribution of wealth is a leftist form of enjoyment, enjoyment that can be universalized rather than enjoyment that's necessarily particular. Like I think what holds together, even though they would think that they're at odds, the liberal, the liberal uh, party and the conservative party is that they both have a form of enjoyment that has to be particular. It cannot be universalized. Whereas I think the leftist form, I think that's why it's about egalitarian redistribution or, or, or egalitarian distribution of wealth, not even redistribution. Like, I think that that is a form of enjoyment that is, I think, anathema to both of those parties, that, they're, that, they're, that their particularism is intrinsic to their position. So I don't necessarily disagree with what you're saying. I just, I just would, I, I would just put it slightly differently, that, 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 that it, it, it's a that what they're reacting against is is a universal form of enjoyment that they don't what they that they find anathema. You you say the problem that conservative enjoyment wrestles with is that there's no enjoyment of belonging. The more one tries to fit in, the more one retreats from one's own enjoyment. Whenever and however one enjoys, one is enjoying the fact of non-belonging. 
the point of impossibility within the social structure. This is why right-wing enjoyment is so obsessively focuses on its enemies in a way that the left need not to do. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah. So, so my point there is just that the, the, in, in a certain way, the right's enjoyment is parasitical on this personal enjoyment of non-belonging, right? Like that you can't, because there's no, and I think this is why the liberal dream of universal inclusion is already, is always just a dream. Any attempt to actually create more and more inclusion, you never, like, no one ever feels like they're included in the thing. Like the more, no matter how much, you, no matter how much accolades you get, no matter what, how much money you accumulate, you never feel like you have enough of that thing. And I think that's the, I think that's the real key to the failure of the right ultimately to even to ever have a viable political structure and also the key to, to the engine for the left ultimately that it can it can yeah sorry go ahead. no i, I want to ask you something and and you know maybe we'll touch on your film background how much trash film you know about the 90s so there's a movie called <laughs> demolition man that comes out in like 93 94 yeah and it takes place in a utopia, a supposed utopia that is a dystopia where kind of uh, sickness is gone, poverty is gone, and everything. Sex is gone. Sex is gone. Yeah, everything's yeah. gone. Um, and you 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 touch on this in the book about um, the utopia. Is that is that is that movie which is supposed to take place in a bit of and I haven't seen it in years. Um, it, is that what you're talking about kind of you do talk about this a little bit the the if you take away everything everything bad and everything is just perfect is everything perfect yeah yeah exactly right like the 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 the, the enjoyment is inextricable from the failures the the, the missteps the like those that the suffering and i think that's to me that's like one of the i think that's a thing that both capitalists the structure of capitalist society cannot avow because there's this image of if I accumulate enough or if I get the right commodity, I'll reach this point at which I'll have an enjoyment with no suffering attached to it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that demolition man is trying to demolish as a, as a fantasy. Right. So I think, it, I mean, I don't think it's trash cinema. I think it's pretty, I think that's pretty high up there uh, just for that reason. Right. And I think that, um, the other thing is that I think the right wing always also has the same fantasy that if we just get rid of, you know, if we just get rid of enough Jews, if we just get rid of enough leftists, if we get rid of all of them, then we're going to have a perfect, you know, mm -hmm. we'll achieve this, this moment of perfect enjoyment. And I think that what it fails to take into account is the way in which enjoyment is the, the failure, the misstep is that's actually the, the, the key to it, not the, the barrier to it. Like the, like I mean, I call it movie. Sorry. Go ahead. No, 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 please, please. I was going to say in that, in that movie, movie, there's a great scene where Sandra Bullock, I think it's one of her first roles and she and Sylvester Stallone have sex and they, they, you do it purely <laughs> mentally through a thing. And, and it's like, and, and he's like, Oh wow. But, but it, 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 and I think no one would watch that. I mean, maybe it's hard to watch any scene with Sylvester Stallone and think it's sexy, but no one would watch that scene and think it was sexy because they've like taken all the like the mm -hmm. the missteps the 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 things that where people don't exactly get it. like somebody 
does something you're like oh wait that's not what i wanted you to do i wanted you to do this instead like all that stuff is what it means to enjoy a sexual experience and i think that film nicely shows how you take out you cut just to the best part and you actually lose everything about it so i think that that's a that's a pretty great example of the way that uh enjoyment requires the the the, the hiccups as much as the success at the, even more than the success at the end that is part of the success and you do talk about that. yeah yeah i mean we, we have to admit that the travesty of that movie is the blue contacts on uh on the was this night not the blonde hair and not not even the blonde hair it was the it was the blue contacts and the fact that that movie changed taco bell forever we have to uh remember the old taco bells you didn't know that pasco i remember that movie yeah, it was part of the marketing campaign. That's why they got rid of the old Taco Bells with the actual bell on top. I know. I loved that old Taco Bell. <laughs> <laughs> M.T. Sot, do you want, I know you have something you want to add to that. Um, I don't know if it's adding or sort of taking us in a different direction, but mm-hmm. there is someone haunting this book while I was reading it. Um, his name is Ye. talk about a digression oh my god i wish i could put you on the screen and just make you the whole screen right now so you're telling me yesterday as you're reading this book and you're cursing my name right you're like jason got me reading that goddamn book on the show jacobin never lets me do so you're like you're like uh you're reading it and you hear Kanye's voice. Where do you hear Kanye's voice? It's really his smile that I see. <laughs> Even through the mask on on the the Alex Jones show, you can see in him an absolute glee. But it's not necessarily right-wing politics that he's gleeful about. It's mm-hmm. contrarianism. He is what he has always been—a contrarian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, what are your what are your thoughts about that? I see so much joy in contrarians. Mm-hmm. Oh, so, they're so enjoying themselves. Take that, Todd. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't. I don't disagree with that. I mean, I think that there is obviously there's enjoyment in contrarianism, and I think I think it's. I mean, well, I think I even have a section or chapter on this in the book that I think that the the notion that transgression is somehow mm-hmm. leftist, I think, is a, is a mistake. And I think this the the uh, activity uh, I, <laughs> testifies to that. I didn't know what kind of noun I should choose, but uh, I think it I think it suggests that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's true. Can you um, expand a little more on the transgression not being leftist? Because a lot of yeah, people I think, think that- it is. I know. I think a lot of, I think people do think it is. And I think that the, the to, I guess my, my, my favorite example of this, I just got done teaching a course on the Sopranos and there, there's a lot of transgression, the Sopranos, and there's not a lot of leftist political activity. And I think it's, mm-hmm. it's just interesting that uh, how much television and film with under capitalism feel free to depict wild transgressions but never you rarely rarely get to see a political a political revolt being depicted in a 
not even in a negative way. You don't even get to see it depicted in a negative way. So it's, it, I, I find that really interesting. And to me, that's, that suggests the fact that it's, it's, it's much less of a, that transgression is much less of a threat, no matter how extreme the transgression is. I think. Do you think that the embrace of trans transgression from the reactionary right is a consequence of their willingness to engage in violence, to challenge the state, to get their out their eventual results enacted? And also, do you think that the inability of the left to engage in transgression is a consequence of the left being captured by the foundation world? By the foundation world. That's probably true. I mean, I, 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 I think that the, the, I guess my, I think the right's always been willing to engage in violence. I mean, it's just, it's a question of like, whether it's subjective or objective, right? I, I'm, so I'm not necessarily sure that that's undergone that much of a change, but I do think that the, clearly, if you're, if the left, the, 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 the dependence upon foundation is definitely going to restrict how willing you're going to be to to engage in violent activity. I think that's that seems like unquestionably true to me. Yeah. So I mean, I've. Oh, go ahead. What are you going to say? Sorry. <clears throat> I just thought of uh, you know people going to protests and breaking the windows at Bank of America and Starbucks that kind of transgression is really common and considered truly rebellious, but there's no real point to it, no real end well, to it. Right. That's what I would just say. Like, I'm not sure that that goes beyond like shattering the window at Starbucks, right? Like it doesn't, right. it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't have a transformative effect like that. And, and so I think that Starbucks can operate pretty, successfully with people at from time to time breaking their window you know and I'm, I'm, i just don't see the, the radical effect of that yeah. right well you you talk about um the different kinds of enjoyment right because it's not yeah i want to i want to find the quote give me a second I, okay <laughs> i went and highlighted all this stuff that i was supposed to I'm going to blame Gene Bajlan for why I'm not ready. Totally. I'll blame Bajlan. Here, MT, I'm going to find this quote. Okay. Be um, we have a, a comment from Nance. I just got the book in the mail. I enjoy Todd. <laughs> Great comment. And another comment from John, Jean Lamont Films. Todd has some dope books. Just wanted to share that. Those are very nice. Right. One thing I'm surprised Pascal hasn't brought up is Todd actually talks about the Haitian Revolution. I saw that. Yes. I do. Mm -hmm. And this is and Dessaline. And Dessaline. And this is something Desaline. Pascal is extremely passionate about. Pascal, how yes. do you feel about that? Uh I'm very happy you brought up the Haitian Revolution and brought up Dessaline because there's a, as I've talked about before, uh I think that. Two Settle Overture is improperly uh, deemed to be the hero of the Haitian Revolution and his role as being a conciliator with the plantation economy of the international capital and the metropole 
is not something that is well known to students of history, particularly yeah. who's actually willing to reimpose a form of what some people would call slavery light. I don't believe it was slavery light, it was actually a form of slavery. And that you know, you mentioning that Celine was uh was quite quite rare for uh uh I would say a white student or, or commentator on the Haitian Revolution. I was actually somewhat impressed by that. Oh yeah. I mean I, I, I know the Haitian Revolution pretty well. Like I've written on it in other places too. So yeah. I, how I mean, how do you see that as a process of enjoyment? Because it's it, like how would you can you elaborate more on you know, the role of enjoyment yeah so i see like the the, the i for me like the, i talk about both french and haitian revolution in the book right like and i think that the any to me any universalist revolt revolution is is always about what are we gonna can we create a form of enjoyment that is that that doesn't require us to exclude anyone from it right and i think right. that 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 seems to me to be it's even more essentially the project in haiti than it was in france i think i think that gets under said right like that i think people that, that i think it that the haitian revolution it, the that was very explicitly universalist and because anti-colonialist and 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 i think that that I mean, the French resolution was much more divided in that way, right? There are certain. Oh, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no. I wanted to. I wanted you to kind of expand on that because I was. I was actually enjoying uh, reading about your take on the French Revolution and what it became, and how that then does affect Haiti with reintroducing slavery to the colonies. You know, you have one point where there there's this moment where people are like, no, 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 let's get rid of all this enslavement in the colonies. And something's happening with your camera. There's a weird light. I don't know. Oh, I'm sorry. It's, it's uh, there's too much light outside. Oh, okay. So, yeah. uh, it's just... Deep state tried to get you. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was just big okay, sun. Sorry about that. It was big sun. Uh, uh, yeah. So so trying to get rid of slavery in the colonies, and then when you get the rise of Napoleon, they're like, no, 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 no. We're gonna we're gonna bring this. Shit no, it's back. A, it's a key. It's a key thing, right? That that Robespierre is, and 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 a lot of I should say that that there have been recent historians in France that have that have done a good job of fighting against this uh, association of Robespierre with the terror. And I think that that's God's going. I hope, I hope that, yeah. I'm sorry. No, that was good. Uh, <laughs> So, so there's this there's this idea that long for I don't know nearly 200 years association of Robespierre with the terror and so he's eliminated on the 10th 10th Thermidor and then the the terror is eliminated that is absolutely not true at all and Robespierre is an important figure because he was when the Jacobins were in charge or a certain element of the the, the, the mountain the Montagnard that's when that's when slavery was eliminated in the colony. So, so Robespierre made a famous speech to the convention where he said, death to the colonies, right? End of slavery. So, and then, and then when, after Thermidor, then, and then Thermidor leads to, to Napoleon becoming emperor, that, that ends up being the, as Pascal was saying, the reinstatement of, of slavery and the recolonization, reinstatement of slavery in Haiti. So, and then, and then the, the, 
the what ended up being the hundred and I don't know fifty year debt of of Haiti to France to to free the slave happened under Napoleon. So that that so the 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 modern destiny of Haiti was 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 a, a direct result of the the Napoleon Napoleon's reintroduction of slavery and, and the war against Haiti. Yeah. Yeah. Many people don't realize that Napoleon was being fundamentally supported by the plantation aristocracy in his rise, because Napoleon comes to power as a result of a coup. So, mm -hmm. and he he was fundamentally being supported by the plantation aristocracy, and their goal was eventually to reimpose slavery as well. Yeah. yeah. And you, so, and so, you talk, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Todd. Please. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I'm you go. Agreeing. You first. I was agreeing. <laughs> I was just agreeing. So, yeah. God damn it. Uh, Toussaint, I feel no. like if you don't talk about this, what I'm be I'm doing a sexism and a Haitianism if I don't let you. Oh, <laughs> well, I don't appreciate Pascal coming after my great 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 grandpappy <laughs> Toussaint Louverture as he enjoys doing. Facts is facts, man. Nice. So Pascal um, is not going to be invited to the Christmas party. He's not invited to his own Christmas party. <laughs> <laughs> Uninvited. It's a little overture setup. <laughs> We're going to kidnap you and send you to France. It's like a diehard twist. <laughs> but seriously, but I'm sure you have something to say about this. No, I did. I did appreciate seeing um, how you mapped out Rotier's turn to the right, and then Louverture, and then Dusseline's turn to the right. I thought that was really mapped out very clearly. Thanks. And it's true; it is rare to see a mention of Dusseline. Well, this but is important, right, Tucson? Mm -hmm. You know, talking about these these big pivots. Uh, from emancipation to right-wing authoritarianism. How how does this happen? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, I think it's, I don't, I think that it, we wrongly think, we people wrongly think that there's some necessary trajectory. Like you have to, like Lenin to Stalin, Robespierre to, Thur to Robespierre to Robespierre. Uh, and I, but I think that that's not true. I think that there's, I think that there's a, I think what happens is, I mean, one of the things I think that gets under, under, under studied, under, under emphasized is the way in which external pressures a lot of times push figures in that direction, right? Like I think in France, there was a, a like foreign powers were invading France and that, that, that makes that, that create, that changes things. I think in Haiti, same, like, the, the effort of France to reimpose slavery and that changes things. So I think it's not, I think it's easy to say like, Oh, you should have sustained this universalist leftist uh, structure, but it's, I think it does. I think the war seems to me always a right wing that, that always pushes things to the right. It seems, I mean, I think that Lenin was pretty aware of that, which is why the like get out of world war one at any cost. Like, I think that the, I think that that always has a right wing, because you're in war, you ought like it unites the country around a common, and that's a right wing structure. Like you, when you're in war, you enjoy the nation, right? Like everybody does. Like that's what, like even the people that are the most 
rebellious to the nation in war, they tend to to rally around the national form of enjoyment. So I think that that's, I think war is a real factor. And I, I, I didn't really mention that in the books enough, I think, but that, I think that that's really an important thing. Well, Todd, I, mean, I wanted to ask you a question oh, about one of the things that you say is that, you know, the, the product of the left is a project of enjoyment as well, because it's based on freedom and redistribution and removing the burdens of capital. But how do you deal with the realization that in the eyes of many, they equate a takeover of the left with extreme authoritarianism, i.e. Stalin, i.e. Uh, Castro's Cuba, if you will, not that I agree with those categorizations, but that in the image of many people in some of these Western capitalist nations, particularly the United States, one of the things that they fear about left-wing takeover is that, that we're going to end up in some kind of you know authoritarian hellscape without the rights that they believe that they enjoy in these liberal democratic societies. How do we go through the process of changing people's understanding to make them realize that what the left is offering is true liberation because what capital offers is enslavement to materiality. Well, I think that's the answer to the question, really. Like, I think that the one of the things is that the freedom gets wrongly defined as freedom to purchase a certain number of commodities if you have enough money. And I think that's a one of the things is readjusting what how people understand freedom. But I, I also think that we shouldn't. I, I often I have this argument with certain friends of mine that like we shouldn't give ground on this. Like I don't think we should accept that Stalin was a was a deviation of the left. Like I think Stalin's a right wing figure. Like I don't think Stalin's a left. So I don't think that there's a need to defend. And I think any move to authoritarianism I don't think is a left wing. That's not part of a left wing project to me. So I don't. I guess I don't feel the need to defend that, although I understand your point that that gets that there's a kind of guilt by association. But I think part of the task of 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 leftist theory or leftist thinking is to make a disassociation of that of those things. So, and and to, and to but but mainly to do what your question suggested in the first place, which is to say there's no there's no, there's not freedom under capitalism. Like there's just not, and there's not equality under capitalism, not even equality of opportunity. So I think that's, to me, that's one of the main I don't know, tasks of, of the left today. So the, how do theoretically, you, theoretically, yeah. How do you feel about, you know, we're in this moment where there's kind of a, a young burgeoning left and people that uh, are using the term communist as part of their political affiliation. Um, you know, this is still relatively a new phenomenon and you make point of a joke in your book, you know, about, about the communism, uh, what killed the communist communism, right? Communist, yeah. Um, I, well, yeah, yeah. What kills them? How do you kill a communist? Yeah, how, do, how do you kill a communist? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and so there has been a big defense of, of Stalin over the last few years. Um, a lot of people reading was it Grover Fur and, and and getting into this kind of um, new vision of what leftism looks like. Does that lead you down the path of, and I know this is just an internet phenomenon and I don't know how serious it is, but we are talking about sometimes 
emancipatory figures moving sure. rightward. Does that get you into the realm of this like MAGA communism and uh, nationalist socialism? Um, what, what's the patriotic socialism? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, right, like, there's a name for that, right? Like national socialism. That's the thing, right? Like I, I think that's a real... I think that's a real danger. I mean, I, I don't know how widespread it is as a phenomenon, but, uh, and, and I think it sh we should be clear though, that, that national socialism came from the right. It wasn't like a left wing deviation. Right. Um, that's important. I, 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 so I always find it funny when leftists get accused of being Nazis or something. I'm like, well, there's a perfectly good insult to hurl at a leftist, which is you call them a Stalinist. You don't need to call them a Nazi. I mean, Nazis are right wing phenomenon there's no i don't think there's any such thing as a left-wing nazi so but but to your point i i i don't i don't I, i'm i'm not invested i i i i've read some of the defenses of stalin i find that a little hard to to follow but on the other side i don't have any trouble with the like i don't see that communism is a word that can't be reclaimed i think it can be reclaimed in a in a productive way so i don't think i don't I don't know that that's one of those where we have to like think of all the words other words like a lot of terrible things have been done in the name of democracy a lot of terrible mm. things have been done in the name of socialism mm -hmm. namely national social so i don't think that i don't know words can be redeemed i don't i don't i don't see a problem with that pascal do you think that marxism is one of those terms that actually has a certain connotation that is uh that can be problematic no i actually think people i mean i have a i have a i wrote a book on hegel i have a hegelian critique of marxism but uh oh, that's interesting i don't but i don't i don't have a pro I, I i don't i think marxism actually interestingly is more palatable to people than communism for whatever reason like i think i have I know people on Wall Street that talk about Marx in positive ways. So I don't think that that I don't I don't think Marxism. I for some reason I maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe I'm just naive, but I I don't think it has the same kind of uh, actual negative uh, association that communism has. Um, or maybe I'm just wrong. I don't know. Yeah. You know, I watched an old. I'm not gonna lie. Sometimes I watch a little too much true crime. And I was watching an old uh, true crime show from the early 2000s called City Confidential. And they were talking about um, an old case from 1979 that maybe you remember in Greensboro, North Carolina, where a bunch of communist uh, doctors and some communist organizers that were native to the area were trying to uh, unionize the textile industry, which historically has been very non-union is another thing people have to understand about like Bessemer, Alabama and Amazon. The South is a, been a union busting region for since slavery. Right? Um, so uh, these, these uh, organizers were murdered because they were going up against the clan. There was actually clan people that worked in the, in the factory. Again, I don't know if you remember this, it was it was kind of a big news story and uh they were having a protest and they called their protest death to the clan and they were like you know some ex-vietnam vets in the clan and their thing was well we went to vietnam to uh to kill communists and these people are self-proclaimed communists so we can't okay. have communism in, in north carolina and to them and even the framing of the show 
they were kind of silly Marxists that never grew out of a phase in their life in the, in the 60s. Um, and I do think throughout the 80s and 90s, we revisit these characters, you know, going back to film. Even if you look at a movie like Poltergeist, which takes place in the early 80s, which is showing us kind of the stereotypical suburban nuclear family. And that movie starts out where these kind of ex-hippie parents are waxing poetic on their rebellious days, smoking weed in their room as the husband's reading Reagan, right? Like right. these, and, 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 and I do feel like we look back at, and, and maybe this generation is dying out with, with me and Pascal, um, look back at the 60s as kind of a, a silly time in their youth when they when they read Marx and only the people that got jobs and tenured positions in academia might yeah, right. holding on to that right. title. Right. So I, I don't know. Yeah, maybe, I, I, think, I think they're synonymous. Yeah, yeah maybe, maybe they're just synonymous. Maybe that's true. Yeah, I just... I don't know I about just, that. I just noticed that I people I talk to, like I can talk... I can... I think here's here's what I think it is. I think Marx can be thought of as an intellectual exercise, but I think communism is seen as a practice. And so that's why I think that there are people that are more willing to talk about Marx and Marxism than about communism. And I, or it's maybe a little less offensive. But I don't I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't die in the hill for this idea. Like I think <laughs> I think I think I think you you might I'm I'm I'll I'll see the point. Like I don't think it's like a I mean, I could be wrong. I just, in my experience, it's been the case that people that are even like I, my kids played hockey when they were little and I used to go to the arena and I'd talk to these parents. I'd have nothing to talk to them except about sports. And occasionally like they've come up, but uh, what, what are you teaching? I thought I'm teaching a class on reading Das Kapital by Karl Marx. And they're like, Oh, interesting. And so they weren't, they didn't immediately like throw them, push me on the ice or anything. So I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, it's, that's all. I'm, and by the said, I'm a communist. I think they might have. So that's all I'm. That's all I'm going by. So it's not a. I don't, it's not a. It's not a good sample size. I see your point. Yeah. I think. I that wanted to Mark, ask you. Hold, hold up, Pascal. Oh, you something. Let it throw something in. So go ahead. Go ahead. I love that. No. Uh, I think Marx has the benefit of being a man, and of <laughs> having of being able to fit into the great man theory of history, and he is seen as a person who was powerful. Maybe not in his personal life <laughs> when he was alive, <laughs> but but the idea of a guy setting all of these things into motion um, is powerful. And so I think it's not as offensive um, to some people as communism. Right. I think if you, you know, if you're if you're an intellectual, you know, if you want to be a smart person and well read, mm -hmm. you've read Marx. Right. Like, I think that's people mm -hmm. think. That. Right. Right. Pascal? Wow, that's an interesting uh, takedown of Marx. It's like Marx got over because he was a man. Interesting. I, like I mean, that. it didn't hurt. <laughs> You're so mean. I'm, I, I don't know. I, I look at I look at maybe because I watch too much crazy cinema. There's a there's a newer film. I don't know if you guys saw it. I think it's called Loose. And it's about this white couple oh, yeah. that adopts a black kid yeah. from some war-torn country. I can't remember and the black kid writes a story, or writes a report on Fanon. And it becomes an issue with his black teacher that he's writing about Fanon. Because it, they're like, Fanon 
is advocating the killing of white people and the adopted mom is like oh it's just a phase you know i called my friend's comrade in college and i read the communist manifesto <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah I think I saw an advertisement for that movie. I found it intriguing when they mentioned it. I would love to get your take on that. Todd, real quick before we get back to your enjoyment shit. You know, yeah. we got we got the movie guy here. Let's let's talk to the movie professor. <laughs> what was your take on that film? Uh can you remind me what the how it ended? Because I did see it, but I can't remember how it ended. <sighs> I'm like, trying to remember. Does it turn uh, out that he's there's some revelation about him at the end, right? He ended up being bad. Like he ended up uh he has a friend that got in trouble or expelled or something and you find out that he actually had did the bad thing yeah that the friend got accused of yeah i mean i i i thought i didn't think it was a great movie but i kind of liked that that it didn't i like it was a explicitly anti-romanticizing this yeah. like this kid coming from the war-torn country yeah. and there you know i i kind of liked that that it didn't that it kind of cut down that 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 image that romantic image so i thought it, i i yeah i didn't have a problem with that i mean i didn't it's i thought a monster was, yeah yeah he was and i thought you know because it, it clearly wasn't saying that like everyone from this situation is but it was clearly like taking these liberal parents and like undermining that position which was probably the position of most of the the spectator that the film was going after so i i kind of i thought that was pretty pretty good i didn't think it was great masterpiece but i i, I like that aspect of it I, I think it definitely frightened white people from adopting any colored babies yeah, well <laughs> definitely didn't stop madonna <laughs> she didn't see it that's why that's why none I of these young... she had already done it though yeah she already had a few right. uh, they're, they're already clear cleaning the you know one of the yeah, rooms yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's interesting that we're talking about film and the culture industry and pop culture because I actually want to tie that into your book on enjoyment. How much can we expect a left project of utilizing enjoyment to improve enjoyment that emphasizes the things that improve the quality of life and people's lives when the ideological superstructure and the culture industry create these kind of capitalist realism narratives that indoctrinate so many people into believing that like you know there's no other there's no other solution yeah i think that's true and i certainly believe the take the mark fisher point about the about capital's realism for sure that's true uh but i don't think that i guess for me i don't think the culture this is my anti-frankfurt school position that i don't think the culture industry is a whole thing like i think it's it, it's at odds with itself it's like they're there's parts of it that produce things that are going to be radical. There's parts of it that produce things that are going to be more conservative than the, the whoever the main figures of the culture industry would want it to be wanted to be like. So I think that there's all kinds of disjunctions within an ideological apparatus. And I so there's plenty of possibility for producing things that actually point outside of and, and show the structure of possibilities for enjoyment outside of the capitalist structure. One of the examples I get, I, I think I end the book with the film, the ending of the film Heathers, which I think is the greatest teen film ever. But I, one of the other examples I guess is, is, is the Christmas film. Like I think there's all these Christmas films that show a kind of enjoyment that's collective, that's universalist, that, that just to put a little in a jargony term that shows the castration of the father, right. That doesn't rely on some figure that leads it 
I don't know. I feel like there's a there's some good things within. Now it's mostly on television. Sadly, I think in cinema it's less. There's just less going on. But I think there's a lot on. There's a lot of things where there's this disjunction within what seems like a, you know, a, a perfectly hegemonic ruling form. Actually, there's moments in it where there's other possibilities that get that get made evident. We have to talk more about Heather's first of all, because that's one of my favorite movies from the from the eighties. And we did a movie show on this channel where we actually had the director of Heather's on. Wow. Who also wrote it, I believe, talking about it. Um, when you first saw Heather's, which is such an offbeat movie and very antithetical to the John Hughes America. Right. That depicts kind of most people's um, picture of the 80s. What did you get from Heather's? Because I, I, I'm so, not going to lie. I, I've, I, I got to chapter seven. I haven't finished it. Okay. So I I was teaching. I just started teaching my first semester. She's a graduate student at Ohio State. Mm-hmm. And a student wrote a paper. She's like, I'm going to write a paper on this movie, Heather's. It's, fr- it's crazy. And I hadn't seen it. And she's like, you really should see it. So I'm like, to read the paper, I went out. I just, I read the paper. I'm like, wow, it's pretty intriguing. I saw, I got, I rented the film or whatever, however I saw it. And I really couldn't, be, I couldn't believe, here's what I couldn't believe. I might even say this in the book. Like, I couldn't believe that it was allowed to be made. Like, I couldn't <laughs> believe, you know what I'm saying? Like, I just couldn't believe that somebody didn't say, you know, like, uh, you know, this film, uh, it's a, it, it's not, it's not really a black exploitation film, kind of a spook who sat by the door. Yes. So, you know, so it's a yes. great film. I think that was our right. first movie night. Yeah, that was our first okay, movie good. night. We showed it. Okay, yeah. excellent. So, so that film it got it got snuck through, right? So all these major studios made by United Artists, all these major studios were trying to capitalize on black exploitation, make money in this way, and then someone snuck Ivan Dixon, who played Kinchlow on Hogan's Heroes, directed it, and it kind of snuck through. And then an executive from United Artists was out at the cinema and looked at it. Was like, wait a minute. We just can't. We can't have this film. And then they pulled it and almost successfully destroyed all the copies of it. So for when I was in graduate school, you basically couldn't you couldn't watch the film. There were a few video cassettes, and they had buried it. United Artists had been bought by someone. They had buried it, and then it got there was a revival of it through this guy Todd Boyd at USC helped to bring it back yeah. into prominence. Uh, but that's a I had the same reaction when I watched others. I'm like, I can't believe this film got made. So I think that that was my reaction. I just, I couldn't. And then I talk about this in the book. The ending, I thought, was just the most radical thing I had ever seen. Like, okay, the killing of the popular kids, that's one thing. But then the way in which Winona Ryder, both she takes this uh, ribbon from the other popular girls and basically ruling the high school. She puts it on her head. She goes, there's a new sheriff in town. And then she goes and 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 befriends the the most outcast figure in the high school and i thought and then they're kind of the end they're walking together down the hall and it kind of fades into soft focus i i feel like that i it's hard for me to think of an ending as radical as that really in 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 cinema so i i i, I again i just i i'm sort of agape because i couldn't believe that the film had gotten had gotten made i love my dead gay son <laughs> I so I'm from Ohio, and so when he says like all you need is a bottle, bottled water, and they'll be they'll be sure that he's gay in Ohio. I mean, obviously now that probably wouldn't be true, but at the time that really 
I thought that was one of the funniest things I had seen. <laughs> oh, yeah. I remember the cop finds the Perrier bottle and goes, oh, Oh, I know. Now we know. (laughs) Pascal, you've seen Heather's. No, I have not. You're making me want to get go like we got purchases. You you know, it's it's one of those movies that I think still stands the test of time. Uh, Absolutely. My young 24 year old daughter definitely loves Heather's. What's Uh, I just taught it. I just taught it last fall. It's a. It's basically. Jason was saying it's kind of a, a takeoff on the John Hughes team film. And that's true, right? Like it, it mm-hmm. has the basic setup of a John Hughes film, except, well, from the beginning, it's weird because a woman, the narrator of the film is buried up to her head in the ground because they're playing croquet and someone hits a croquet ball at her head. Uh, but it's about this, about a, a, a popular clique and everyone in the clique is named Heather. And that's how the, that's, that's the name of the film. And it's about the dominance of that clique over that, like this utter dominance over the high school. But then it gets challenged when this, when Christian Slater, a guy named JD comes to the, he's a new kid in the school and he, he kills one of the others basically. And that, that, and then there's another murder. And then, and then basically the entire authority of the high school gets upended as a result. So it's pretty, it's chaos. Yeah, he's trying to cause chaos, but not the Winona Veronica figure is not. She's, she's, I think, much more of a, I would call a revolutionary figure at the end, at least. Which, which is interesting because, you know, back to the whole enjoyment thing. Is JD a right wing figure or is he a leftist emancipator? That's a good question because I've, I've thought about this a lot, Jason, because the what Veronica does at the end would be impossible without what Jason does in the middle, right? Like she has to kill him or mm-hmm. I think she, or she lets him kill himself, I guess. Yeah. yeah. But, but the, the, the chaos that he causes is actually, it's propedeutic to her revolutionary act at the end. So I don't know about that. I mean, that's a good, it's a good question. I think like there need, I guess what it suggests is there has to be some kind of shuffling of the, of the, normal re- everyday relations for that leftist intervention to be possible i guess that's what how i would say well I, I well this i think goes back to our discussion earlier on about how do these people make this right wing turn if the j in pascal now you have to watch this movie you know maybe that's our serious movie for movie night as headers but as if jd doesn't die and he becomes the quote-unquote ruler of the school then you have an authoritarian rule right he upended the social order which was oppressive right these super rich girls being extremely mean and gatekeeping he kills them and the and the men and then he's left on top what does the school then look like yeah i think it's a disaster i think you're right like i think that's the that's, I wish I would have written that. You should have written the book for me because that's better. Like I think that that, <laughs> it really does. Like the way you describe it, it really does. That shows the precisely the deviation, right? Like that that you get this. It's almost like the film brings us to a, a, a dividing. Like you can either go to the Veronica Winona Ryder route or the J.D. Christian Slater route, and one is a one is this horrible authoritarian rule, and the other is this emancipated rule, which which the film obviously leaves open-ended. But I think unlike, 
I always think the ending is an interesting contrast with Breakfast Club, right? Because Breakfast mm. Club, you get this kind of emancipation at the end, right? Like the and Judd Nelson does the mm. even has his glove on his hand, right? He does mm. the thing that on the football field, right? So it's like a triumph, triumph over the the jockocracy. Uh, but you get the sense that on Monday it's all going to be back to the way it yep. was before, right? And I yep. think in but in Heather's that's that, that you do not have that sense at all. So yeah, no, they're, they're yeah, they're they're literally killing him, and 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 I find I find the whole thing interesting because, you know, to the points about the Stalins of the world, right, or Pol Pot, um, he doesn't care about the students that are mistreated because he never talks about them. And again, I've seen Heather's too many times. Sorry. He doesn't talk about the Martha dump trucks in the movie. There's a, there's a, a girl that tries to fit in and she's a larger woman, young girl with their high school, young girl. And there's a popular song on the radio that's going on as these girls are killing themselves, which I think is the funniest movie. It's a funniest setting. song. Yeah. Teenage suicide. Don't, Don't do, do it. it. Teenage <laughs> suicide. She blew it. <laughs> And and this young girl and this and the band is called Big Fun, yeah. And this young girl who's heavy set is depressed because uh, the the Heather's make fun of her, and ruthlessly, ruthlessly make fun of her in, in a way that right now we would do documentaries about, right? And she jumps in front of a car and tries to kill herself. Now JD's character is not trying to kill the Heather's as an act of revenge right. for Martha Dump Truck's attempted suicide and oppression in the school. I shouldn't say oppression, but teasing in the school, bullying. He just wants to up in the social order because he just fucking hates them. Yep. And it's interesting, again, young burgeoning left we have here in this country. There's a lot of people that want to upend the social order but then you go and then what <laughs> what then happens if uh you you get to blow up all the starbucks what do you do then if you get all the power do you just become you know another jd and you're and you're a dictator yeah i think that's what's so great about the ending of the film right like it does show this other possibility of someone who's who's genuinely motivated and there were there were inclinations in her on the side of Martha Dunstock before dump truck is, I think the pejorative name that yeah. they give to her. Right. Uh, but there's, there's a sense of like, she does feel a quasi alignment of a burgeoning alignment with her in the beginning. And then in the end, she fought and she realizes that. So I think that, the, I think you're absolutely right. Like what's motivating is the thing, like, is it just to like, like, just to create, to undermine the order for the sake of undermining it. And that comes back to the thing about transgression, right? Like, mm -hmm. like, of course, who cares? Like, if it, if you have to transgress in the name of like creating an emancipatory society, fine. But if you're just transgressing for the sake of transgressing, then there's nothing emancipatory about that. I think that's a really important, and I think JD falls on that second. Yeah. That yeah. Second I, yeah. I, I think, I don't know. I think that movie, maybe that's why that movie resonates with people to this day. Because there's a JD and even the, the leftist clicks. <laughs> right, right. right.
Yeah. And and do we have to keep an eye out? You know, are you are should we be watching out for the JDs? Well, I think it's interesting because Lenin kind of was, right? Like Lenin kind of he saw like there's this famous last letter about like he's too rude to be to be and, and then what I was just reading this really good book on Stalin and and it and the point was that the other members of the Politburo didn't want the letter to become public because it also included criticisms of them. So mm-hmm. I think there is a I think there is a sense in which Lenin was looking out for the JD. And so, so I, I do think that that is a I think that's an important part of a leftist project, right? Like to, to send. And I, I think it, it's maybe it's not easy to sense who that is, but it's someone who gets off on the transgression more than on the project. Right. Like that I'm- seems. I mean, Pascal, I'm sure you have a lot to say about this because, you know, we see this as much as we talk about black political figures from the 60s and 70s. I'm sure we see this same, the same thing there. I think the part of the problem we have is that no one has a true vision of what it means, what it is to have a left project. That there's no actually clear understanding of what that means. And I think that it's a, that's a consequence of having a left that's so divorced from power and is so used to only opposing things mm-hmm. that the concept of having a vision of creating a new society and building something escapes the consciousness of a large cadre of people and we're stuck in which critique in a posture in which critique is our only weapon is it is it then the politics of no is is that become where we're stuck you know i, I wrote a paper a year or so ago about uh, punk rock i don't know if you listen to, to punk rock at all time but uh i did music for years got to know a lot of people in the in the that first wave of of yeah. hardcore in the late 70s early 80s and it seems like they kind of lived in the politics of no um and kind of uh that was it no and then gatekeeping right right which is no, i of, think I, a bit like, so, you know, I, I I like punk well enough but i think that i think that analysis of it is perfectly correct and i don't even think the people that are that are in punk would object to it, right? Like I just they, would, <laughs> they didn't. They, would, they wouldn't think it was a critique. They would say, "Yeah, that's it," right? Like so. I think that that, but I think that's, I think what Pascal said is pretty is exactly right, and I think that that's the, I mean, there that that seems like a really dangerous position and a threat, right? Like not a. I don't think that's something to celebrate as a punker would. Like I think there's something, I think there's something really dangerous about that, just because you like you you end up getting. What ends up happening is, and I think the punk is this, is it, you get a fetishization of the no, right? A fetishization yes. of resistance. And then yes. it becomes like you just do that for its own sake. And I think that that is really, then you're, then speaks about enjoyment too, because then you get off on the very thing. You need the thing you're resisting, right? Like you, you can't, like, unless you have an alternative vision that you're trying to realize, you end up getting off on the resistance and then you, and then you end up needing the thing that you resist. And then, then where are you? Well, well, for me, 84 is a pivotal year because the no was authoritarianism, Reagan and Thatcher, right? And right. 84, you get the reelection by a landslide of Ronald Reagan. And what are you rebelling? I mean, of course, you're still rebelling against the power structure, but it's almost as if your rebellion was futile. And after the fall of the Soviet Union, no one really cares about your rebellion. You're just saying no to say no. Now you're on these, these little subgenres, but we also start to get like kind of the commodification of no. 
and this is where I think the culture industry is is interesting. And I'm not a a, a student of the Frankfurt School. I know it peripherally from, you know learning from Pascal. I didn't sit there and read a bunch of Adorno, so I'm not going to act like I know everything about it. But what I do find interesting about the 90s and the 2000s is you get the glorification of no as youthful indiscretion. Look at Nirvana. Nirvana is a hardcore punk band. We just changed the name and their no becomes edgy and important. Right in 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 the nineties, and in ninety four, when Kurt Cobain dies, that edgy important no dies. The derivative of that, and I'm not saying this because I hate these people, but the derivative of that is Green Day, whose album comes out that same year, coincidentally that same year, which is a very happy no. And that births all of the mall kind of music and culture that comes out of that happy no blink 182 and all these music and then that becomes punk rock and punk rock now is no longer a dirty underground movement of rebellious young people it's just a bunch of kids that don't want to listen to their mom right i mean isn't what's interesting that the key event there is fall of soviet union because that's like the existence of a global alternative, whatever its actual mm-hmm. nature, the existence of that then has such a fundamental effect on the way politics within capitalist society functions, I think. So I think it's really hard to overestimate or over evaluate the, the impact of the fall of the Soviet Union, I think. It's really, it's such an apocal event for the internal politics and cultural politics even of, of capital society. I think that's absolutely right. Maybe I should finish part two to that. Center, <laughs> but I mean, Pascal, how do you feel about that? I, I, I just think that that's a, a pivotal time in culture in general. Even if you look at hip hop, I mean, the fact that in the '90s you have the Fukuyama concept of end of history, the sheer hubris of that position the end of history coming out of the fall of the Soviet Union and mm-hmm. you know, the belief that capitalist Western liberal democracy is, you know, basically here forever should tell you how, how, how much people were high on their own supply at that time in terms of believing that the, you know, the West had won. So uh, I agree with you that uh, those, I mean, this is why we concentrate on, you know, the, what we talk about here as the 50 plus year counter revolution about how much, so much of the politics that really starts with uh, Carter in the late 70s, but becomes exacerbated in the 80s with Reagan and Thatcher, that takes us into this hellscape of neoliberalism, which is, you know, hyper-privatization and removing of state functionality, that it becomes impossible to envision any other option in terms of governance, in terms of, the, you know, the, 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 the power of capital that um, choices become limited. And I think it's absolutely correct. And I think we're still suffering the, the, the consequence of that today because I don't believe we have a left. I believe we have leftists. And I believe the leftists we have are a product of really what things that have happened in the last 15 years, starting with the 2008 crash, quite honestly. And none of us have been able to, to come about to answer the question of, of what is the alternative. 
Mm. Right. Nicer politicians. That's always the, the only thing that's been in it. I mean, people throw around this term. Some people think there's being done incorrectly. The right, the new fascism, neo fascism, the rise of fascism, the rise of the new right, so on and so forth. We are, we have gone so far to the right that people are throwing out the fascist terminology, and we still have Democrats saying, well, we need to have liberals or leftists saying we need to have a popular front with the Democrats. That's the best we can do. I mean, we tried that, you know, what, 75, 80 years ago? What did it get us? Like, not to say that that's the wrong strategy, but what, why is there such a lack of creativity on the part of the left? Because the left is, you know, is still stuck trying to develop an identity within itself. Todd? No, I, I, I have no disagreement with that. I think that's exactly right. And I think that the, it seems like to me that the, the, there's been, and I, I would say it's like there's no, hasn't been a way to figure like without the Soviet Union, a way to figure an opposition to capitalism that that envisions what it might look like. And that I think that's, you know, I, I the problem is that I think that that has to that it can never be like there's a vision of like Marx didn't write a vision of what communist society would look like. He was like says like two sentences, right? So I don't think that that it can be articulated by some thinker, some theorist writing a book. I think it has to be worked out practically, right? And that, and I think that's what Pascal is suggesting is not there. Like there's not that kind of practical, because there's no, it seems so that all people, the left seems so much in the position of just resisting that there's not this way to actually like work. You know, the Kurds are an interesting group because there there is the the Kurds have worked out this idea of I mean to what extent like they're they're in an oppressive situation because they don't have their own state but they have this idea of communalism right as a kind I that wouldn't necessarily be my position precisely because it doesn't have a note that can't it, it is very vulnerable to the state that it's within but it nonetheless is some kind of way to like work out in practice in actual like living what a, what a what a structure would look like and so i i think that's a really the key thing like you can't there's no way to say theoretically ahead of time what it's going to look like it has to be worked out along the way I, I just don't think there's any way around that jason says something on this show every now and then that i find very very profound and helpful is that structurally the left is always stuck looking in the past mm-hmm Everything is about the past. We have 19-year-old kids arguing about Stalin in 2020. <laughs> <laughs> Stalin was based. Stalin was Don't hot. Don't you dare talk about him. Yeah, he was hot. Like, look at young Stalin. He's so hot. Yeah. You see that hairline? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's it. I, I think that's right. And I, it's interesting when you said that, I immediately thought of this line from Marx, that the, the, the revolution of the 19th century cannot draw its poetry from the past. Right. So it's interesting that Marx himself said that. Um, so one of the ways that, though, I, I, I mean, I get that, but isn't one of the ways that you change the present is to change the past, like to change, not just to, obviously you can't change the actual events that happened, but to change the way that it's read so that how, and, and I think that's what Marx was trying to do. He was trying to say, well, this whole history of capital wasn't, it wasn't just like, uh, people buying low, selling hot, or whatever, you know, like instead there was a, 
exploitation of the working class, right? So I think I'm not, I, 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 I get the point about arguing over inanities from the past, but I think that the, like in a way reinterpreting the past is the way that you create a different future. But there, right? there, there tends to be a fetishism, especially about the idea of whatever is revolutionary struggle to you in 2022 is seen through the lens of 1968. And those conditions are different drastically. Um, we're not in the same moment. And if you're constantly looking at 1968 or even some people, you know, 1906, <laughs> you're looking at like the Russian revolution, even if you're looking at Cuba, these are all very different situations. And they're, they're not, you can't just flatten it and say, well, this works yeah. there, it can work here. I totally agree with that. And I, I, it reminds me of it. Sorry, I'm no please. people all the time, but it reminds yeah. me of what, so Hegel in philosophy of history says, you know, people have never learned the lessons of history. And that gets quoted all the time. Like people have never learned. But then the next line is, and they're right not to because history has no lessons at all. <laughs> because every situation is exactly, he says exactly what you just said. Every situation is so different that if you tried to take the lesson from one thing and apply it to the next, you'd be lost at sea, right? So I think I, I was reading a right-wing columnist who quoted that. And I, I, this is back when you could write letters to the editor. I read the letter to the editor. I said, I think that this person doesn't really want to be quoting Hegel here because the very next line completely <laughs> undermines. Or maybe they should get a better quote book that has the, you know, the whole, they didn't print my letter. But uh, I think that that, I think it's really, really significant that you can't try to take a lesson from one epoch and put it into another or from one place and put it into a different place. I just think you're, as your, your point is right, like history is, it's particular, right? It doesn't, they're not, they're not little lessons you can draw. And then, yeah. It, it, and, and to use these as grand narratives, like I understand it. And, and my friend, Michael Harris, who I don't know if you've met him or read him, he uses pop culture to kind of explain things. And, and he yeah. tried to use star Wars as a grand narrative for the left. He has a book called welcome to the rebellion. And I love it. And I, and I love Michael's work. And there really is no grand narratives for the left like there is for the right. And what is there for people to unite behind? And so I see the need sometimes for people to yeah. embrace the idea of things, the Panthers, maybe the new left, you know, maybe even Stalin to some degree, right? Because that is a counter hegemon, a, a true power. Um, that does change things for, for a lot of people. We talk about this all the time. Adolf Reed talks about this. That helps the civil rights movement. Right. right? right. Without the counter-hegemonic power of the Soviet Union, the civil rights movement isn't what it is. Right. So, you know, I get that, but I, I feel like there's no cohesive uniting story, which is why I thought Harris's book, which sadly got slept on, it comes out during covid you know, there's no put as you know, Todd. You know, sometimes there's no big push, right? <laughs> and that hurts. But I, I thought that that was an interesting story, even for people that aren't even Star Wars fans, because it's it's a uniting story that can bring more people to the fold. Yeah, if you have a true leftist project, like you talk yeah. about in your book, you know, we don't have slogans like "the Jews will not replace us," right? Right. right? 
no one's walking around that's a real leftist saying limbaugh will not replace us or right you know whatever um they're, they're inviting slogans that are fighting if anything we're fighting against power not people right or structure um, right structure, structure. Yeah. Right. yeah yeah um yeah I, I totally i think that's right and i i i would I, the only thing I would say is, is does the left need a story or does it is is the point of the left the interruption of the story, right? Like, and and can you live in the interruption? So that's why I think like, yeah. the, I think that the the figure that wants to enjoy the transgression wants to keep wants to interrupt, but not, but it needs the thing that it's it's fighting against, right? So it it has to be fighting against something. But I think to my leftist dream would be like living in the interruption itself so that you don't even need the thing you're fighting against right like the 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 way so i i would just say that the way we fight against the whatever the structure is capitalism to, to name it uh is is the is already the form that the new structure would take on right like that that you can't you can't separate i think this is important that you cannot separate the way that you struggle against something from the form that the new thing that you want to create is going to look like, right? Like, I think those two things are, I think we oftentimes tend to say, no, we have to resort to, and I agree, sometimes you have to resort to terrible things to, to overthrow a oppressive system, but you still always have to keep in mind what you're trying to create when you're fighting against something. Toussaint? I'm just vibing, man. <laughs> <laughs> just vibing, man. This is a cool conversation. Robert? Uh, I have no vibing. comment. I'm so mad at you two black people. It's because you're Haitian. What? <laughs> if you guys are from the Dominican Republic, you'd have a lot to say. Well... <laughs> I'm holding back. I'm holding. Don't go there, Emperor. I'm holding back. I'm holding back. I'm holding back. I was thinking. I was thinking in terms of enjoyment. There's a cartoon from, I want to say the 60s, maybe the 70s, uh, called Wait Till Your Father Gets Home. And uh, they have a neighbor who is always looking out for the Ruskies, as he says. He's always looking out the window. He's super paranoid. He thinks the Russians are, like, about to come. <laughs> like now. <laughs> and he's always looking for them. Um, and, you know, I'm reading your, your book, in Enjoyment and the Left. Enjoyment, Right and Left. And I'm thinking... That guy found enjoyment in being that paranoid. Absolutely, absolutely. But yeah. is it interesting that his his enjoyment is the enjoyment of the of the Russian that he's fearful of, right? Like I think that the I think that that like a couple things. Like the rightists never avow their enjoyment. That's a I think that's a really important. Like I'm not doing this to get off on it. I'm doing it because there's a threat. There's mm -hmm. a you know like so I think that's a really important thing. So. One of the one of the ways to struggle, I think, is to just bring that the, the fact that there's enjoyment going on to the fore. I think that's a important step, right? But I also think, you know, like the, the, that where the enjoyment is located is important. That even the that even the rightist enjoys in the same place that poison, 
Jason read that line about non-belonging, that place of non-belonging, which the left wants to universalize, the right just wants to distance themselves from it, but it's still the same site of enjoyment. So that would be my main claim is that the site of enjoyment is the same. It's just the leftist goes there directly. The rightist has to hate that position and distance themselves, but still parasitically rely on it. I I am also, uh, while I was reading, reminded of uh, there was a time when these uh, these news channels were going to diners and talking to people who were Trumpists about um, immigration and about kids in cages and all of this. And I remember they were talking to this one couple who could barely fit into the, the booth at their diner. Um, and they're just ordering all of this food and they're saying they don't want liberals telling them how to feel. They don't, they don't want liberals thinking that they don't like kids and they don't want liberals trying to make them feel bad because they don't care about those kids in the cages. Right. Right. It's amazing that you could, I mean, they just looked so gluttonous. <laughs> They're clearly right. enjoying their food and enjoying their lives. And they do not want to be told um, to feel bad about anything. I, I, right. Think, All right. Right. I think most people felt bad. Again, I think it's a very small segment that's bold enough to be like, eh, no, F those kids because I just hate them because they, they exist. I think most people feel bad when they see children suffer. Um, there's audio that I took from that for a short intro that I made for this show. And it's like one of the most painful things I had to edit because you mm -hmm. keep hearing a kid getting literally taken away from their parent and uh, a border guard, you know, trying to calm the kid down. But that's traumatic. Yeah. And I don't know too many people that would revel in that, in that trauma. Um, they came up with the line um, it's the parents fault it's the parents who put their kids through this not mine they wanted to go back to enjoying themselves I mean a lot of us don't like to see suffering we can see it in the movies and it's fake isn't the first thing you tell your kids there's nothing in the closet it's, it's look it's, it's all fake look let's watch the making of this movie so you know it's fake there is no Freddy Krueger and there sure? is a reality. Sometimes I told you about how that nightmare that a black dude came in my house with a Jerry curl and a shotgun. <laughs> oh my god! But we just remember your youth. It was not nice. Out <laughs> <laughs> a way to derail my train of thought, uh, bastard. <laughs> no, but don't you think? Don't you think? Can I interrupt? I think, I think that your point would be that that yeah, we don't like to see the suffering directly, mm -hmm. but we nonetheless rely on it, right? Like I think that, that I think right. that you know, it's one thing to be confronted with it, like the like like that couple with the hot mic. They weren't they weren't confronted they weren't confronted with what you saw and heard, right? Like they were mm -hmm. confronted with the idea of it, and then they're like, uh oh, blah 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 blah. But I think they they're able to still disavow what's really happening. And I think that disavow to me, 
you know, one of the things that used to get talked about all the time with capitalism is repression. Like it demands a certain amount of repression, but now it's pretty clear that's not true, right? Like you can, you can, mm-hmm. you can let loose on a lot of horrible things and still mm-hmm. fit fine in capitalist society. But I think what it does demand is disavow of what you know, right? And I think this would be a perfect example. Like how could everyone in America basically keep going on while this was happening on the border and you're right, Jason, like most people will be horrified by it and we're horrified by it when confronted with it. Well, they just they just disavowed it. They just said, OK, I know very well, but I'm going to I have to live my life, whatever. Right. So I think that's a really key aspect to how capitalism works. Is it because these things seem too big? And is it because that's where representative democracy, liberal democracy comes in and erases that worry from your mind and maybe even divorces us from an idea of community when we think about governance because when you go there's kids in cages and then you see some congressmen went down there which were pretty powerless in the situation if people really remember some congressmen went down there they're going to fix it and everybody kind of walked away those those places didn't go away immigration is still a nightmare i live in mexico you know, I, I live around people that can't go back to where they grew up because of the smallest infractions that wouldn't even spend them, you know, a day in jail. Right. So, you know, I don't, I, I feel like we have all these accoutrements that keep us away from really caring and That's- showing, showing the gluttonous fat people eating going, not my problem maybe isn't a fair representation of the not my problem uh mm-hmm. I, I think people act differently when the ca- when there's a camera on them no I, that's true that's certainly true i but i i think like those those i think the immigration thing is distinct from like what let's think about like the way any commodity is produced right like the, the way the iphone is produced like mm-hmm. if you showed people like when they're using their iphone exactly how the cobalt was obtained Mm. to make their iphone Mm -hmm. then they wouldn't be so like oh i have my so that but yet most of them probably do know what i mean at least my students all know but i think most know but they do this you know you do this fetishistic disavow where you take the you like enjoy the phone and you're like well okay like i don't want to give up my phone but my claim would be that the suffering that you disavow is actually integral to the enjoyment. I mean, I don't know what your mm-hmm. position is on diet, but I think eating meat, I think it's, 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 I think it's pretty interesting in this way, right? Like I think you, no one wants to, no one, not most people don't want to see the animals slaughtered right in front of them and then eat it. Right. Mm-hmm. But I think they also don't want to, I don't know if you know this, but all these like fake meat companies are about to go under because people were like, I just, I prefer the real thing. I don't, yeah. what do they prefer? Like nothing suffered to make the fake meat. And I think that they, what they, what they get off on when they're having their steak or whatever is that the animal suffered like, okay, they don't want to see it. Actually. They don't want to go to a slaughterhouse. Like we protect, I don't know if you know this, but you cannot get anywhere near We're better protected than a nuclear facility. Right. So it's really true. So, so that's why, because you have to preserve this enjoyment of going to McDonald's or wherever Mm -hmm. and having, so, so I think that those exa- I think the, the, the kids in cages is a little bit you're I there I, I kind of agree with you that there's all this apparatus to protect us from it. But 
I think in, 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 in regular capitalist production, the same kind of fetishistic disavowal is at work. And I think it's much clearer that it is integral to the enjoyment of it, of the, of the commodity. No, that's an Let interesting ask- concept. Oh go, oh, go ahead, Tucson. Go on, girl. Sure. Let me ask you this. Is saying there's no ethical consumption under capitalism a way to disavow? Yes. 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 <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I agree that there's no ethical yeah. in capitalism, but when it's said in order to then say to license one to then do whatever, right. right? And I think that's the point. Like the point is, what's the psychic function of what you're saying? Not what's its truth value, right? Because the truth value... Truth value, that's not why the person's saying it. They're not saying it because it's mm-hmm. true. They're saying it because I want to be able to eat my hamburger without having to think about anything and enjoy it. That's the that's why they're saying it. But so. here's where it gets really interesting, especially when we talk about like the farm to table uh idea yeah. that is so popular, right? Especially in high dining, like, oh, we, we killed this thing down the street. There's a um I don't know how familiar you are with California, but on the main interstate that connects Canada with where I am in Mexico, the I-5, as you go past the Bay Area. I've driven that road many so times. You, you, you know what I'm I know talking exactly about. what you're going to say. <laughs> you pass <laughs> Harris Ranch, which is a, a nicer dining establishment that prides itself on everything you are eating in the restaurant is from the ranch, the farm, as well as the meat. And literally, Pascal, literally, the next exit or maybe two exits down is the slaughterhouse. The smell of death is overpowering. And all my friends that, you know, I, I'm from California. When we drove to LA, we go, oh, we got to go through Cowschwitz. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> it's true. It's, 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 it's repulsive to drive through that. Yeah. Oh it, yeah. 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 So what do we say so, about that? You know, where it's like, Hey, by the way, this cow. I know. Well, look, I think the degrees of disavow aren't always the same, right? Like, so, <laughs> you, you know, it's, it's sometimes like certain at certain things we disavow even more, sometimes a little bit less. But I, I still think there's disavow at work and the ability to enjoy that steak that you're eating there. Uh, anyway, I, I don't know. I feel like that the. the yeah, I don't know. I forget what I was going to say, but that—that's a good. It's, it's, I don't know if I agree with that. I think people have no problem eating their steaks. I think that there's certain types of consumption where people either they they don't care about the way it's actually produced, or they're just totally comfortable enjoying. It. I think that people are more driven by narcissism than they are consciousness. Mm. I disagree with that. Mm. I I disagree with that. I think you can see the disavowal in the way the food is presented, in the way the meat is presented. There's no heads. You don't have to see the little X's over the eyes. Right, right, right. It's you don't even even see fish. Even the term meat is disavowal, right? Like we don't say like ham. You don't say I'm having pig for for breakfast, right? Like there's a disavowal of the animal. Like I think that I don't, I don't. I don't disagree with you that there's a that there's a I don't think there's mass consciousness on the part of diners. I think my point is just that there has there, that that the enjoyment is the enjoyment of this like there has to be some enjoyment of the suffering involved in there. Like that's like even of the even of even of the car that you drive of the of the of the iPhone that you use like like the 
the fact that someone suffered to produce it is integral to the enjoyment of it. I think. I don't think that that's. I don't think you can divorce those two. I do agree that there is the 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 axiom that there is no ethical consumption of the cap, capitalism. I don't deny that. I don't deny that there are there is suffering being done in the chain of production. What I'm saying is that most consumers don't care about the suffering. Yeah, I think no, but I, I think they do. But I would just say they care in the sense that they get off on it, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, that, that's care to me. That's caring, right? Like they, yeah. that, 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 the, 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 like that's why I think that the whole robotic fantasy is a has to be a fantasy because I think it'll be less likely, and I think pro commodities will be less enjoyable the more they're automatically produced, right? Like, the, it, I mean setting aside the fact that capitalism needs to needs labor to create value right but i so i think i guess my claim would be that they 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 care in the sense that they they're invested in it they're invested in the suffering they're, it's not like oh i just want my little thing i don't care i mean it's like the way it's like the way someone says i don't care what other people think right like anytime someone says to you i don't care what other people think you have to say to yourself, like, why are they saying, why are they telling me I don't care what other people yeah. think unless they want me to think I don't care what other people think, which suggests that they do desperately care what other people think. <laughs> right? exactly. so I think, I think, it's, I think the, the, the consumption works the same way. Like, there, there's an even the denial of, like, I don't care how it got, how it got here, I just want it. Mm. Eh, I don't know. I think there's an investment in it. I think the disavowal shows the investment. Yeah, like why disavow? Like why, why call it meat? Why take the why take this, take it mm -hmm. apart from the? Why not show it being cut up right at the table? Exactly. So they don't do that. Even at the even at the steakhouse, there they yeah, don't show they that. Don't do that. No, you're right. No, you're right. No, you're right. That's true. I, I've just why? always found that fascinating, though. That yeah. drive is the most yeah, fascinating. Not, I mean, the other thing is, there's a. I mean, how big is that one ranch right on the five? It's like mm -hmm. you, you drive for miles and miles and miles and you don't you don't even pass an open patch of ground because the cows are so packed together mm -hmm. that the, and the stench is overwhelming. Mm -hmm. It's it's an I wasn't vegetarian when I lived in California, but it was an I should have turned baseball. <laughs> <laughs> <Take it anyway. laughs> yeah. yeah. I'll go the longer route Actually, longer what it is. <laughs> <laughs> it was Texas that turned to me, actually. I have to say. Well, if you're going to do something right, I mean, that's the one place where they're in Louisiana where I've seen people eat roadkill. Yeah. Oh, man, it's horrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, hey, that deer, why waste it? It's a whole deer. It's a whole deer. You know how much you, know, you can feed your family for what, a year, maybe a year and a half yeah. with a whole deer? Yeah. yeah. Mm hmm. Have you seen how big a deer, like a male? Have you seen how big a deer is, Pascal? Yeah, hunting a deer and roadkill is two different things, man. If you get there early, it's less roadkilly. If you hit it's like it, the you're five like, second oh, rule. Win, win. <laughs> win. It's basically eating carry on, man. That's just <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, I'm not gonna crap on how somebody else feeds their family. I don't know too many. I mean, those people were very few and far between, and I think some of them did it as, as a bit of a, a gag. Because another right. thing that's very popular in the South is there's processing plants. Right. 
you know, the not the South you live in, Pascal, where everybody's in a bikini. <laughs> Including Pascal. <laughs> 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 the south above you and the south below you definitely has a processing plant somewhere. Nutra rat was something people ate in Louisiana. Yeah. Ooh. I have a friend of mine who told me her parents eat raccoons. I was like, don't invite me to dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Can I say also the disavowal is in referring to meat as protein? Right. Mm. There you go. Yeah, it's really good. It's really good. Mm. MT is also a vegetarian. Yeah. No, yeah, notice the bias. Well, bias. Have, you ever, have you ever hung out with a vegetarian like after hours? It's the worst thing in the world. Why? What do you mean? Yeah, I don't get it. We had to wait so much longer for you to get your food in New York. Oh, stop it. It's not my fault. It takes so long to make grilled cheese. Grilled cheese. If you're a vegetarian and not a vegan, that's not my fault. We were in that bodega for like an hour. Please shut up. (laughs) (laughs) I don't understand. Everyone's so optimized for meat that it's like when there's no meat, we have to take an hour. I don't know. It's not my fault. It's true. We're we're not even trying to be funny, Todd. Like we we all did a thing in in New York, and. we all went out afterwards and she literally ordered a grilled cheese and it took that it took everybody got their meat stuff first (laughs) Mm -hmm. yes they did (laughs) but see vegetarians ruin everything she just got a bag of chips and hushed (laughs) 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 just eat your defeat and some veggie chips Todd, thank you for hanging out with us today. Hey, thanks so much. I had yeah. a great time talking to you. Wherever you guys are watching or listening to the show. Oh, that's the wrong sound clip. Sorry. <laughs> no, my brother. <laughs> no, my brother. <laughs> I thought I hit the applause for Todd, but it was the do not come uh, Donald Trump and Kamala Harris. So that is oops. Here we go. Thank you, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> For hanging out with us today in uh, Tucson. Mm-hmm. Wherever you guys are listening or watching the show, there's links in the description to Todd's new book. And it is called... I just dug right in. You know what's funny? Because we get these PDFs, I never know the titles of the book. Really? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Enjoyment right and left on Sublation Media. It's out now. Get it. The first book. The first book that Doug Lane published. And we all are kind of, we, we are part of the Sublation family in a way. So it is it is cool that, that uh, we got to have Todd on. I remember the meetings where they talked about Todd. So I'm actually kind of excited to meet him because I remember hearing about him. I was like, man, this Todd McGowan guy seems like he's typical. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh, no, Todd's pretty easy. (laughs) I've been nervous about this show all (laughs) for two weeks. And the guy comes on, we have a great show. Yeah, that was a great conversation. I, I, We need to have Todd back. 
Can we? Yes. Can we? Can we? Can we agree that we're going to have Todd back? Oh, should we have Todd back for movie night? Oh, that would be dope. Oh, you that do would deep cover. Um, oh, so you want to do deep cover? You want to? Okay, so you guys. Are yeah, somebody uh, suggested that in the comment, and I thought about it. I was like, that would be a good movie. You have got to have. You have got to watch Heather's. I gotta watch Heather's. Where can I get that? Uh, Amazon. Anywhere. Yeah, I think it's even on Netflix. Okay. What year did that movie come out? Eighty nine. It's amazing. It's an amazing movie. It really, I've seen it. That's st- really saying something. I'm still shocked. Forrest and Conan got the director writer of that movie to come on movie night extravaganza. It's a big deal. That's yeah, really cool. That's a big get. Conan knows people in the in the film industry. Some people, you know, L.A. is incestuous with people that do music, and they, you know, you work film jobs on the side. So. Uh, he, 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 uh, Pasquale, my buddy Pasquale, he his, he broke into film with J.J. Abrams. Wow, mystery yeah. box, yeah, J.J. Abrams, mm-hmm. Pasquale Romero. So, yeah, music and film, especially if you live in LA, is kind of it's the same scene. So, in Toussaint, Pascal's, I was, mm-hmm. I was putting this album together there's a song that i was doing and we were when i was putting it together toussaint is with me on a video call and uh toussaint i actually released that song did you yeah Yay. do you remember what you called it um kate back in cell in the trap house <laughs> this is exactly what it sounds like <laughs> You think Kate that can sell in the trap house? She Kate Beckinsale. She goes, the actress. She goes, this sounds like Kate Beckinsale is running back into the trap house. And um and and uh what she she's she's embracing Lavon Di Viantier. <laughs> little Lavon Di little, little <laughs> Like they had a fight. And there was a breakup, and then there's this moment that Kate Beckinsale walks or runs back into the trap house, and her and Lavon Diviantier have a very passionate kiss. And uh, that might not have been the mo the the mood I was trying to set, but mm-hmm. when she said that to me, and I don't know how many people have ever mixed a song or an album, you have to listen to stuff over and over again till your ears don't work. Mm-hmm. So listing this over and over and over again, all I saw every time, Kate Beckinsale. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking Kate Beckinsale. So I think I've queued up that moment on this this track, and then we'll go out to this. Um, I think it's funny. So look at that. Bam! Wow. That's That's beautiful. Yeah, I did it all. Thanks, Gene Bajlan. That's beautiful. 